Well, last week, we began our study of the rich young ruler, and uh, we saw that it was a challenging passage in many ways, and today we're going to continue on, and we're going to kind of go a little beyond it in verses 23 to 26. Let's read the whole text again, Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, so Matthew Chapter 19, starting in verse 16, says, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And we'll stop there for today. Well, the situation with the rich man in verses 16 to 22 became an opportunity to teach the disciples in verses 23 to 26. Jesus was a master of using a situation and turning it into a teaching opportunity. The rich man went away sorrowful and and he turns to the disciples, Jesus turns to his disciples to teach them about the difficulty of such a person entering the kingdom. Yea, it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible, that is, humanly speaking. It's impossible for man, but all things are possible for God. Now, what makes it impossible? And that's what we want to think about today. What makes this impossible? What makes it easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? I called this message the difficulty of salvation. The young man had great possessions and he was unwilling to give them up. He wanted eternal life, or at least he said he did. He wanted it enough that he found Jesus and asked him what he needed to do to have this eternal life. He wanted it enough that he tried to keep the commandments, and in his own mind, he, he did keep them. 
In verse 20, the young man said to Jesus, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? Now he interpreted the law somewhat superficially. He didn't grasp his failure to keep it perfectly. He didn't understand that failure to keep the law at one point makes a man a lawbreaker and and therefore as a lawbreaker, he is worthy of God's wrath and judgment. And so he doesn't recognize the holiness of God. He doesn't recognize that God is majestic in holiness, that God is holy, 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 that he is separate from sin, that God is absolutely morally pure, and that God's holiness means that God is devoted to himself, and therefore he is necessarily against everything that is contrary to him, that is, he is necessarily against all sin. And God in holiness will punish the least sin because the smallest sin is contrary to God. God will uphold the fullness of his glory. And on the day of judgment, God will show the world his hatred for sin. But the young man didn't see himself as a sinner. And I think many people are like that. Many people don't understand themselves as sinners. They underestimate God's holiness on the one hand, they think that, and, and on the other hand, they think they do pretty well. Another way this man underestimated God was in regard to God's goodness. He didn't know God as his good. He didn't know God as the one to be enjoyed. He didn't know God as his delight. He didn't know God as a fountain, an overflowing fountain of pleasure and delight. Perhaps he knew the words of Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Perhaps he knew those words, but in his own experience, he didn't know what it really meant. He didn't know what it was to enjoy this great and awesome God. He didn't know what Ezra the priest told the people, as it says in Nehemiah verse 8, chapter 8, verse 10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so this man didn't recognize the goodness and the greatness of God. And because of that, the young man was unwilling to pay the cost of following Jesus. He would not give up his possessions and follow Jesus. He would not come to Jesus because he would rather keep his life in this world. He didn't understand the goodness of the offer that he had. He could have had God as his refuge and strength. He could have had God as his joy, but instead he chose his possessions. And on the other side, he didn't understand the danger that he was in in his sin. He didn't understand the danger that he was in and somehow he doesn't see that by going away sad, this man has forsaken eternal life. He's going to go to hell. He has forsaken his soul for his temporary time with his possessions. And so do you see the difficulty here? There's a deadly combination here. You see, this man doesn't recognize the goodness and greatness of God, which would have motivated him to give up his possessions to serve God through Jesus Christ. And he doesn't recognize the danger of his position. 
as a man in sin, as a man under the wrath of God and not recognizing that position, it should have motivated him to flee to Christ for refuge, but he didn't recognize that either. Plus, he has riches in the world, and that's going to keep him occupied and distracted from both sides. And so his wealth is going to keep him focused on the temporal rather than the eternal. And so there's a great difficulty in in saving a person in this position. They have the, the good things of this world to enjoy and they don't recognize God as a better good and they don't recognize the danger that they're in and so they just stay engaged in the world. And so there's a great difficulty in saving such a person. Again, Jesus says it's impossible. It is impossible. And what I want to do today is I, I simply want to do what I've just been doing the last few minutes. I just want to talk to you about this passage. I just want us to think about the cost and the difficulty of salvation. We want to think about how God does the impossible. We want to think about what he does to make us willing to pay the cost and to come to Jesus Christ. And last week as we looked at this, I I felt like we covered so much ground that I thought we should really look at this again and then try to cover the next three verses as well, verses 23 to 26. Now, Matthew has set up an interesting contrast here. In verses 13 to 16, you remember Jesus welcomed the children. And he said in verse 14, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to people who are like children. And these people are, are those who come to Jesus, and they... They, they have this childlike humility. And they come to Jesus with nothing as children. They, they come trusting and believing him. And so we see on the one hand how welcoming the Lord Jesus is. He is, he is welcoming. He, he is willing to take the weakest and the lowliest. The lowliest. He welcomed sinners. And he called them to repentance, but he welcomed them and he ate with them and he received them as his followers. Remember how uh, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, the first blessed estate there in the Sermon on the Mount was to be poor in spirit. And then Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And in verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. It's not blessed are those who think they have attained righteousness. It's those who long for more righteousness than they currently have. And so we see the the welcoming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what the Lord said about about Jesus in Isaiah 42. This is quoted in, in Matthew chapter 12. Just go ahead and turn there. Look at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 18. Jesus takes the poor in spirit. He takes those who mourn. He takes those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in verse 18 of chapter 12, it's it's speaking about the Lord. It says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. A bruised reed was considered useless, and it would typically be broken and and tossed aside. Smoldering flax would hardly burn, and most people would just put it out, but Jesus would have concern for the weak. Jesus is compassionate and caring, and, and he taught his disciples his ways. He's gracious and gentle in, in bringing his disciples along and teaching them his paths. But we must not forget on the other side of the spectrum that Jesus demands absolute allegiance. He's welcoming, and yet he is demanding. And we see this with the rich young ruler, the, the young man, he doesn't come as a child. He doesn't come to Jesus at all. He won't accept Jesus' terms. And Jesus says to him in verse 21, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now Jesus isn't setting up a two-tiered discipleship here. It's not as though there are perfect and less than perfect disciples. What Jesus is doing, as we saw last week, is he's leading this man to eternal life. And he's showing him that the only way to salvation, he's showing him the only way to salvation, which in this particular case, for this particular young man, it was required that he would sell all that he had sell what he possessed, and then follow Jesus as a disciple. And, and I think the reason for this is that Jesus recognizes that the man's possessions are an idol. See, this man loved something more than God, and Jesus says that that cannot be. And last week we saw that, that we are not maybe all to sell everything that we own in order to follow Jesus, but at the very least, we are required to renounce all that we have. We are at the very least to have Jesus as number one in our lives. Jesus must be number one. Jesus is Lord. The confession of the church is that Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans 10 and verse 9 that we must confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that if we do that, you will be saved. And so Jesus is Lord and he rose from the dead. Last week we turned to Luke 14 and verse 33, where Jesus says, therefore, any of you that who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 10 that we must love him above our father and our mother, above son and daughter. We must love him above our own life. Matthew 10, 38 says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Just look over at Matthew chapter 16. I want to start looking at verse 24. I'm going to flip around a little bit today. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus asks us to lose our life for his sake. And in so doing, he promises that we will find life. The true and best life is the life lived for the Lord. But still, we're to deny ourselves and give up our lives for Jesus. That's what discipleship is. It's serving Jesus Christ. And if we don't do that, Jesus says we will lose our soul. You see, each one of us comes into this world on the path of losing our soul. Each of us would lose our soul unless we come to Jesus, unless we give up our lives, unless we serve him as Lord. And so when Jesus told the young man in verse 21, if you would be perfect, the meaning of perfect in the context there is something like wholehearted. If something like fully devoted, if you would have eternal life, there, there needs to be this kind of perfection of, of a, a wholeheartedness in serving the Lord. Commentator D.A. Carson said about this word perfect, he said, what the word perfect, or let me quote him again, he says, quote, what the word perfection suggests here is what it commonly means in the Old Testament, undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience. This young man could not face that. And then he goes on to say, because of his wealth, he had a divided heart. His money was competing with God. And what Jesus everywhere demands as a condition for eternal life is absolute, radical discipleship. This entails the surrender of self, end quote. The young man loved his possessions more than the Lord, and he forfeited his soul. And it's a bad trade. But many, many people make a similar trade. Many, many people trade their wealth for eternal life. Do you remember what we saw in Matthew 13 when we studied the parable of the soils? And you could turn there if you want, Matthew chapter 13. Jesus taught the disciples that the word of God or the word of the kingdom would be preached in this age and that they would preach the gospel and that their message would fall on different soils, representing different kinds of hearers of the word of God. And Jesus interprets the parable in Matthew 13, starting in verse 18. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what is sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word of God and, or the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. 
The rich ruler is like the seed sown among thorns in verse 22. He is divided. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches make him unfruitful. And in some ways also, he's like the seed sown along the path. He doesn't have a full understanding of who Jesus is. He doesn't have a full understanding of the glory of God or of the dangers of sin. And Satan has come and snatched the word away from his heart. And so the man has a divided heart and Jesus, in this evangelism encounter, Jesus leads him to see it and he goes away. But like I said last week, far too often people in such a condition, they don't go away. And they aren't challenged by the preaching of the word and they continue to live these lives of defective discipleship. And what they are then is false converts. As Elijah said, they are halting between two positions. This is 1 Kings 18.21 Elijah came near and to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. How long will you go limping between two different options? Now I counted a grace if someone can be shown that they're in this halfway condition. It's a, it's a grace of God. It, it's, it's actually God's grace that this young man was able to go away sorrowful because at least he wasn't deceived into thinking that he had eternal life. James calls this kind of halting between two positions, a, a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. One 16th century author called it an almost Christian. Such a one is an almost Christian. And again, it's better to walk away sad knowing you aren't truly a follower of Christ than to continue following but not really be saved. And if you wonder about yourself, whether you're in this position, I I think you can take comfort with this. Jesus knows your heart and he knows if you truly have the love of God in you. And he is able to show you, Jesus is able to show you your condition before God. And so go to him and run to him and meditate on his greatness. Meditate on the vanity of the world that is passing away. Go to him and ask him to change your heart. That you would not love this world and that you would love him more than the things of the world. And I think it's a good sign if you can sincerely pray something along these lines. Lord, help me to deny myself. Help me to take up my cross and help me to give up my life for your sake. Help me to follow you and to have that undivided heart that you require. Another help here is to recognize that even a genuine believer is going to wrestle with these things. You know, nobody can say I have completely cured myself from the love of the world. As long as we are in this flesh, we're going to have to fight the good fight and resist sin and strive to live with an eternal mindset. But fundamentally, the Christian, at the the foundational level, the Christian is one who has decided that they're going to fight that fight by the grace of God. They have decided that Christ is worthy and they're going to renounce all to follow him. Now let's go to another passage here, still thinking about this word perfect. 
with the idea of a single heart. Let's go to, uh, you know, again, Jesus said, if you would be perfect, but we're going to Matthew chapter 6 here. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19, really a parallel passage to what we see with the rich ruler. Jesus says there, Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus commands us to lay up treasure in heaven. And how do we do that? Well, partly by using our earthly resources for the kingdom and for the expanse of the gospel. But the full answer is in verse 24, and it's very much in line with what we're seeing in the passage, the, the passages that we've already looked at today. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, the word there literally is God and mammon, which is wealth and property and possessions. You can't serve both. And so we lay up treasures in heaven by serving God and by serving Jesus Christ out of love for him and devotion to him. Now verses 22 to 23, just above verse 24 that we looked at, pictures this devotion with an illustration about the eye. Look at it there. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And so the eye is like a lamp. And if, it's, if it lets light in, it's, it's a, if it's a healthy eye, your whole body sees by the light of the eye. But if your eye is bad, if your eye is unhealthy, your body is in darkness. If you are blind, your whole body, yourself, the the person who you are, cannot see. And in a similar way, what you focus on in life, what you treasure, to put it in the words of verse 21, what you treasure directs your whole path. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, the glory of God, His name and His greatness, that should be our treasure. And there should be, and, and if that is our treasure, they, th- there will be no competition and, and they will take no competition. You cannot serve God and something else. You can't serve God and money. And so if your treasure is on earth, your heart will be there also. And the so-called light in you is actually darkness in that case. But if God in heaven is your treasure so that you live for him, your heart will be there also. Your heart will be in heaven and you will lay up treasures in heaven. And God will light your path and you will be a disciple indeed. And so when Jesus says in verse 21 of our text, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He's calling this rich man to a life of wholehearted discipleship as a follower of himself. But the man was not willing to pay that cost. It was too much for him. The cost was too high. And isn't that really the case for everyone? 
Isn't that the case for anyone? Satan will snatch the seed away every time if, if that's the seed. And that's why according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person is not willing to pay that cost. The cost is too high and the payoff is too low because they're blinded to the glory of God. The natural man has his treasure on earth and he has no taste for heaven's joys. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6 tells us that Satan, who is called in that passage the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And what are they blinded to in that context? Well, they don't see the glory of God. And they don't see the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, they don't serve for Jesus' sake and they don't submit to him as Lord. They're blinded by Satan. And that's what we saw very much in our study of FOF last week. There's an inability in man because of his sinful nature. And a blind man can't make himself see. And a dead man can't make himself live. And a hard-hearted man can't make himself soft. And a hostile man can't go against the grain and submit himself to God's holy standard. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. And then verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. A leopard can't change its spots. An Ethiopian can't change his skin and neither can one accustomed to do evil change himself to do good, Jeremiah 13, 23. We are slaves to sin in our first birth and unless the Son sets us free and the Spirit grants us a second birth, we are not willing to come. We have no desire for it. We are those who are by nature children of wrath and those who are by nature children of wrath follow the course of this world. And they follow the prince of the power of the air and they carry out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. Now in this state, we are still responsible for our sin. And we, we are still responsible for our rejection of Jesus Christ. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Note that word, it's in unrighteousness. It's an unrighteous suppression of the truth that man does. It is a sin worthy of death. We are haters of God. We are enemies of God. And we are guilty as we come into this world. But we cannot deliver ourselves and, and, and hence the difficulty that our text speaks of. God must save us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And verse 10 further explains, as we think about the context there, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so salvation is a work of God. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ. It's a, a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, man cannot create himself anew. God must do it. Man can't take a step even towards it unless God first makes us willing. I love Psalm 110 verse 3 where it says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And according to 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And just a few verses before that, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so God must take the initiative in salvation. And God does take the initiative in salvation, but again, that in no way removes our responsibility to repent and believe. And it's in no way incompatible with us begging people to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. God works through that kind of preaching to bring people to salvation. And so we see this difficulty, but God is able to overcome it. Let's go back to our text here. Go back to Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at verse 23 here. The young man was not willing to pay the cost. And Jesus turns to the disciples in verse 23 and said to them, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with difficulty. And a question that I have is difficulty for whom? Difficult for whom? Well, for God, nothing is hard. And so this must be talking about man. And Jesus is going to go on to say it's impossible with who? With man, this is impossible. Listen to the parallel passage in Mark 10, 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And what I want to grab from Mark there is that what Jesus is saying here really applies to everyone. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Besides, as we think about this, we are really, we are the wealthy. According to the ancient Near Eastern standards, really, we are wealthy, all of us here. And so back at our text, Jesus makes another statement which, which shows us what he means by difficult. What does he mean by difficult? Verse 24, again, I tell you. Another solemn statement from the Lord. Whenever he says, truly, I say to you, or again, I tell you, this is a, an important statement that he wants us to get. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Salvation is difficult. Entering the kingdom is difficult. And Jesus tells us something easier to kind of show us how difficult difficult is. After all, there's, there's different scales of difficult, aren't there? The, you know, the climbing Mount Everest is difficult. Getting out of bed in the morning is also 
difficult, right? This morning, it was a difficult morning at our house to get out of bed. We understand, though, that it's more difficult to climb Mount Everest than it was to get out of bed this morning. And so we're, we're thinking about scales of difficulty. And as we think about that, the camel was the largest animal in Israel. And the eye of a needle was the smallest opening imaginable. And so to put the biggest thing into the smallest opening, in this case, a camel through the eye of a needle, it's actually easier than to put a rich man into the kingdom of heaven. And the point of the illustration is to show the extreme level of difficulty involved here. This is extremely difficult. It's actually so difficult that it's impossible for man. You see, God is able, but man is not. Now, despite the impossibility here, some theologians, if we can call them that, some theologians have tried and some interpreters have tried to put a camel through the eye of a needle. One example would be our Arminian friends. They, they don't want to accept God's sovereign prerogative in salvation. They don't want to accept that God has designed salvation in such a way that he gets all the glory by doing what would otherwise be impossible. And they don't want to accept that that they are helpless and unwilling and unable until God makes the first step. Or sometimes they want to save God from having a bad reputation in one way or another that I won't get into right now. But whatever the reason for this, some people have come to this text and they've tried to make the impossible possible. And one way that they've tried to do this is by the supposition that there was a small gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle. And that that small gate in Jerusalem, that it was so small that a camel could go through it only if you took all of its luggage off and it crawled through on its knees. Now that's a nice little picture and it kind of makes the impossible possible. The only problem is there was no such gate in Jerusalem. And besides, Jesus mentions impossibility, not so annoyingly difficult that nobody would bother, right? Why not just take your camel a few hundred yards to one of the proper gates where camels could get through? Well, anyways, that was one possible or one interpretation that kind of went around. Another supposition, which, um, which none of the early manuscripts support, okay, but but there there was a there is some manuscripts that have done this. The the word camel in Greek is camelon. Okay, can you hear that camelon? That's the word camel. Now the word for a rope in Greek is camelon. Camelon, camelon sounds you know it's like tomato, tomato or whatever, right? Camelon, camelon. And a few manuscripts, late late manuscripts, ninth to thirteenth century manuscripts, very, very late, a few of them have this kind of adopted reading in the margin or sometimes right up in the text, but very, very few, only a handful of the thousands of manuscripts that we have. But when you think about it, even ropes don't fit through the eye of a needle. And so it really doesn't work. Again, look at verse 24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? See, the disciples were amazed, and what that shows us is that they understood the illustration that we're talking about something 
that is impossible. And in verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now Jesus gave them some kind of a dramatic look. The word there is a a very rare word. It means to look intently. And so he looked at them and he said, man cannot, but God can. This reminds me anyways of Isaiah 59, where it says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear dull, that it cannot hear. Verse 2 goes on, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear, but again, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Or Isaiah 63 verse 1 asks, who is this? And the answer comes a little bit later in the same verse, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. That's the Messiah answering, who is this? It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. I think this text should also remind us of texts like Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord asks Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Or Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, I don't believe there's any other way for us to understand this text except that Jesus is saying that God could have saved this young man. That God could have saved this young man. He could have overridden the young man. He could have opened his eyes, he could have made him willing, but he doesn't. Maybe he did at some later time, we don't know, but one one of the things that we need to understand here is that God owes salvation to no one. Some people he leaves in their sin. You see, grace is not owed to anyone. God chose whom he chose. He is gracious to whom he is gracious, which means that God exercises his sovereign right to show grace to whomever he will. Some people receive grace and God overrides their hostility and grants them faith and repentance and life. And they get what they don't deserve. They get mercy, which they do not deserve. Others get what they do deserve. They get justice. You see, the worst thing that you can get from God In your unredeemed state, the worst thing that you can possibly get from God in that state is what you want. Because you are a slave to sin. And when God gives a sinner what they want, he leaves them in their sin, and in the end, they get justice. Nobody gets injustice because nobody deserves salvation. Some receive justice, others receive mercy. Some get what they want and they remain in their sins and they keep their life in this world just like the rich young ruler illustrates for us. 
But others get what they didn't want. And in mercy, God opens their eyes and they see their sin and they flee to Jesus Christ and they become willing by his grace to pay the cost of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they renounce all that they have and they come to Christ as little children and they learn from him and they follow him. Now, why God does this for some and not all is really not answered in Scripture. Unless we count Romans 9, and I'll I'll have you turn there with me. Go ahead and turn to Romans 9 and verse 20. Paul's really dealing with the very same thing. God's sovereign right to choose whom he chooses and to harden whom he hardens. And in verse 20, There's an answer to the possible objection. You know, in verse 19, some, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And the answer in verse 20, but who are you, O man? And I think we need to hear that as it is from the voice of God. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches or make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory Even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And so the answer from Scripture is, what is it to you, O man? If God wants to make known his power to these vessels of mercy which he chose, what is that to you? If that's God's plan and purpose, what's your problem? And Jesus looked at the disciples And I think he did that to show them that God has done the impossible with them. And so he gives them this dramatic look, kind of saying, God has done the impossible for you. And we've already seen this back to Matthew chapter 11. We've seen this this sovereign prerogative of the Lord Jesus and of God the Father. Matthew 11, 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding like the rich young ruler. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding like the Pharisees who thought they were so wise and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's hidden from the wise and understanding. It's revealed to the little children, to the weak, to the lowly, to the base things of the world. God has shown his grace. Jesus says again in verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses 
to reveal him. And that's what the disciples are. That's what we are. If we have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Son has chosen to reveal the Father and we see his glory and we follow Jesus and we follow the Father and Jesus is our Lord And we are willing to pay the cost as hard as it might be, as as much of a struggle as it is, we become willing to give up everything because Jesus is greater and God is greater even than our own lives and our own selves. We saw the same thing in Matthew 16 and verse 16 where Simon Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The the Father has drawn Peter and revealed who Jesus is to him. Well, how about you? Has the Father revealed his Son to you? So that you have come to him for salvation as a little child with nothing to offer, nothing to bring but your sin? Has the Son revealed the Father to you so that you know Him as your good? So that you know Him as your refuge, as your joy, as your delight in this sinful world? See, we really need to be sure of these things. We live in dark times and the Lord is our light. And so we really need to be sure that we know the Lord as our good, as our joy, as our delight, as, as the one that we go to in trouble and trials, not to alcohol or drugs or pleasure or whatever we can get out of this world, but to Him. He is our refuge and our strength, our joy, our delight, our shield, and our salvation. We really need to be sure of these things. But I want to close this in, in another way, going in another direction. Slightly different here, but... But someone might say here, something along these lines, God has worked in my heart. God has worked in my heart to come to Christ and to trust him for salvation. And I want to love him. And I want to serve him. And I want to know him as my good. And, And I would say that's awesome that you could say that. But then a question comes, maybe something like this, but but what can I do to serve him? And where should I serve and what, what should I do? You know, maybe you're a truck driver or maybe you're an equipment operator or a farmer or a, a housewife here today. Maybe you're a child, little kid or a, a young man or a young woman. You're a husband or you're a wife. You're, you're something in this world, but you, you feel like you're just an ordinary person. You know, one thing I've noticed in this broader section, and we're really zooming out now to Matthew 19, is that Matthew 19 has the same outline that Paul follows in Ephesians 5 and 6 or in Colossians chapter 3. And we call this the household code. The household code. Uh, Matthew 19, 1 to 12, remember, speaks about marriage and singleness. Honoring God in the, the covenant of marriage. 1913 to 15 speaks about children, and then verses 16 to 26 speak about riches and wealth, and we can think about it like our employment or our relationship to the world. And in a similar way, when, when Paul in his household code, when he starts thinking about Christianity and living it out and, and applying the doctrines of the faith and walking worthy of the calling to which we have been called, 
Paul doesn't have some great thing in mind. You know, I think sometimes we think we got to do some great thing that in order to live for God and serve God, but, but that's not necessarily the case. When Paul thinks of it anyways, his vision is honoring God in the day-to-day lives of our marriages, of that covenant union between husband and wife, and in our relationship with our children and children's relationship with their parents, honoring your parents, submitting to them, parents leading your children and raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And Paul thinks about having good relationships with employers and employees and just kind of generally throughout the world and in the church having good relationships that glorify God. And so this devotion and this discipleship that we're called to, which seems on the one hand radical, is, is actually just radical in your family, radical with your husband and wife, radical with your children in serving the Lord and making every opportunity in the, the day-to-day life that God has given you of glorifying Him in those moments and decisions and the small things of the day. You don't have to do some great thing. God wants you to worship Him in the day-to-day living in your households. And so we live out this devotion to the glory of God in our day-to-day relationships with the people that God has put around us. We glorify God with our use of money, laying up treasure in heaven, enjoying the good things that he has given us with thanksgiving, but never allowing them to become idols in our Lives, And so this is where God would have us glorify him and apply this teaching that we've seen in Matthew 19. We're going to sing a great song in closing. We're going to sing, I'd rather have Jesus. And if it's true of you, then then sing it with joy. And if it's, if it's a prayer that, that you need to pray, then ask the Lord to give you a heart that can sing this song In truth, I'd rather have Jesus. Let's pray. Father, oh, we pray for any here this morning that don't know you that way, Father, the way that we've seen, that don't know you as good and that don't know the danger of sin and are still clinging to this world that is passing away or halting between two positions, whether they'll follow Christ or follow the world, or kind of try to assume some halfway position, Father, we pray that you would open eyes and hearts, and that you would help us that are disciples of Christ to live this out to your glory, to to really in truth say that we would rather have Jesus than Christmas presents or anything else in our lives than silver or gold, than fame and fortune or whatever else this world and the devil would offer us. Father, help us to see you and to see your son as worthy and to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.